Hey folks, Ben from Paddle here. The following is an episode that originally aired on March 9th, 2021. It's still relevant today, and we've got a dedicated field guide for you in the show notes as always. But once you're done with that, check out sasverticals.com to see a brand new show from Paddle. It's basically the show SAS geeks have been dreaming about. With that, on with Protect the Hustle. Boston has a bad reputation, but it's a reputation that isn't completely accurate. It's more of a misunderstanding. Here's a little story to explain this. When I first moved to Boston over a decade ago, my first experience was quite a doozy. I had just gotten off the plane and was on the T, which is the local subway for those of you who don't know. And with all of my bags, I was just cornered there trying to avoid hitting people. My Midwest sensibilities that I developed in the Wisconsin Dairyland would just not prepare me for what came next because I accidentally bumped into someone and I responded just like my mother taught me, oh my gosh, sir, excuse me, I am so sorry. Without missing a beat, this mass hole turns to me. He takes out one of his headphones and goes, why the f*** are you talking to me? And just moves on with his day. While I could have generalized and wrote this off as just another Boston stereotype, What I learned over the years being in the Boston tech community is that it's less that Boston is unfriendly and it's more, they're just not as outgoing. It's a rough city with rough weather and even the white collar community acts blue collar. You work hard and you get to where you need to go. Yet fortunately, this mindset cuts both ways. Boston's community is one of the most loyal that I have ever encountered. Once you're in, and it's not that hard to get in, if you can get through the rough exterior, you're part of the family. It's a community that's refreshingly meaningful and loyal, not one that's superficial where everyone just wants to get what they need and get out. Boston made me who I am and one of those people that brought me into this community and is one of the best people I've ever met in building community is Sarah Hodges. She currently leads Pillar VC in Boston, but she's had stopovers leading marketing at Carbonite and Runkeeper, as well as building community and people ops at Pluralsight and co-founding Intelligently. She's an ecosystem builder and someone we can learn an immense amount from in the realm of community and people. All that and more coming up next. From ProfitWell Recur, it's Protect the Hustle, where we explore the truth behind the strategy and tactics of B2B SaaS growth to make you an outstanding operator. On today's episode, Sarah Hodges builds community. We talk about marketing-driven growth versus product-driven growth, the ingredients that make up community, how community drives the potential of a tech ecosystem, the drive to stand out and be different, and unlocking your authentic self with a willingness to adapt. And Runkeeper, you were director of marketing? Yep. What was that like being like building a consumer company in Boston? Because we're not like known for it. And yeah. even back then, Runkeeper was like one of the first, essentially. Easiest job I've ever had as a marketer. Um, really? So I think I came in, so Carbonite was really, when I was there, it was driven by the marketing engine. The growth was driven by the marketing yeah. engine. When I went to Renkeeper, the growth was driven by the product engine. So, cool. you know, from the very first day I came into the company, the product had already been engineered for growth. Sure. I think we had 5 million users when I came into the business and without ever having spent a single dollar on marketing, yeah. which is both good and bad from a marketer's perspective coming into the business. 
but there was a free app and a paid app at the time. And Jason Jacobs, who was the CEO of Runkeeper, had built the first mobile app for tracking fitness in the iPhone app store. So we had a first mover advantage, of course. But then, you know, the product had lots of hooks for social sharing. Running is a really emotional thing when you achieve that goal of crossing the finish line. Yeah. Um, and the product just tapped into that energy and did a great job kind of snowballing and getting people to tell their friends and spread the word. But the other thing that worked well was we had this paid app and free app, free app. And two weeks after I came into the business, uh, Jason came and said, hey, we're going to make the paid app free. And there's <laughs> <laughs> nothing people like more than giving away something that used to cost money for free. And so as soon as we did that, I think in one weekend, we got another 5 million users and then it just continued to grow from there. So it was for me a really great experience as, as a marketer learning from product team like that. And was your focus mainly on, was your focus on the money or was your focus on just users at that point? Our focus wasn't on the money. I would say we were doing some experimentation to understand, like, was there an opportunity to monetize the user base and what would that look like? Sure. But primarily our focus was on growth, sure. you know, get as many users using the product, telling their friends about it as yeah. possible. So that's where our energy was. And I think what's interesting, like, when you, you mentioned, like, marketing-driven growth versus product-driven growth, one better than the other, they just different? Because I think you've, you've done marketing-driven growth a couple of times, now you have product-driven growth I would argue again. Yeah. So like what what is your what's your take on that? I think in a perfect world they live together. Sure. I think you know like in a perfect world you start with customer development, you understand where the customer pain exists, you think about building a product that solves that customer pain in a way that you know delights someone enough that they want to tell someone else about it, but you can then amplify that with marketing. And so, you know, I think marketing means all sorts of different things. There's sure. user acquisition, there's community, there's brand building. So there are a lot of different flavors. Depending on the business, you need different amounts of each of those things to find the perfect recipe. Totally. And is that kind of what you saw? Because the next, after Runkeeper, I don't know if it was directly, but it was intelligently, right? Yeah, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So I did two things in parallel, so okay. smarter and intelligently. The story behind intelligently was that my partner Dave Balter and I looked around the Boston startup ecosystem in 2012, and there was just a ton of new energy. So we had, you know, obviously a bunch of CEOs and executives who had built and scaled successful companies here in Boston, yeah. but we also had tons of people who were new entrants, who wanted to get involved, wanted to help build startups, who really had no idea what they were doing. And yeah. so we looked around and thought, hey, there's an opportunity to bring these two groups together. And so we spun up this organization intelligently, and the goal was never to make money. And so I think there's a lot of benefit that came from that, just being so community-oriented in the yeah. early days. We got a bunch of our good friends to come and teach classes on product and marketing and sales and finance and accounting. And really the way that that started out was we threw a big party. So we started with community first and we just invited everyone we knew to come celebrate intelligently the launch. That's how we built our mailing list. Mm -hmm. We put up a series of classes and then from there word just started to spread. So I think yeah. we were certainly helped by, you know, all the local media here, mm -hmm. all of our friends who were helping to tell people inside their companies about what we were up to. But it really was a community driven uh, company that started with people first. What's the, like, from your perspective, like, when you're building that community, because you're, you're doing that now at, at Pillar with kind of the crypto community as well as some of the other communities in Boston, like, what are the ingredients there? Like, because I know with Intelligently, you know, big party, obviously, <laughs> but, you know. Parties like, always help. Yeah, yeah. but is it, but it's, it's, it's not always the thing that keeps them coming back, right? Yeah. And so even building a community with Runkeeper, you know, 10 million users plus, I know they had millions more, yeah. you know, can't throw a big 
big enough party to LA. Yeah. But like, what do you think builds community? Because I think that's one thing like in the world that you're really, really good at, better than most at, is like building that community up. I think you have to not start from yourself and what you're trying to achieve. You have to start from the people you're trying to serve and where's the void there that you can help yeah. fill on the community front. I think too many people try to build community as a path to X, as a path to revenue, as a path to growth. But starting from a lens of how can I help this group of people? What are What's missing for them? How are they not able to connect with the people or resources that they need today? you know, that turns into goodwill eventually. And so right in the beginning, it may not have a direct impact for you, but over time, it definitely comes back to you. So you just have to think about, you know, what's needed here, what's not happening today, and how do I bring people together? I think it's really simple. You know, it starts with kind of a kernel of, are there a core group of people who really love what you're doing or are interested in something that you're interested in? Bringing them together, talking to them about, you know, what do you need? What's going on? What are you seeing? And then they'll invite more people and they'll invite more people yeah. if you're doing something that's really driving value for them. So for us, you know, we're here at Pillar, we're really focused on blockchain right now. Yeah. And we saw that there was a budding community in Boston, but people were really siloed. Sure. And we spun up just a drinks night in our space and just, a, you know, a chance for people to come together and talk to each other about things they're learning, things they're discovering. And that has grown from 20 people to, I think our list now is 250 people who come to that. And it just keeps growing and yeah. growing and growing. So it starts with really, really figuring out what, where's the need and how can you help yeah. serve it. That's cool. And do you think, like when you're doing this, because you've done this multiple times now, do you think about it tactically? Do you think about it like, all right, let me figure out like, you know, exactly what you said, where that void in the community is. Then we're going to host an event, even if it's 10 people then we're gonna make sure we write up the content. And like, do you, do you think about that tactically or is it more something that's a little more fluid where you're like, okay, I know we wanna build this, we wanna fill this void, let's just start doing things. Like, yeah. how do you think about it? I think it's a combination of both. So yeah. we always wanna know what's our target, where are we headed? You know, yeah. what does success look like in the end if this all works out? But then we also wanna understand what else is happening already, whether it's in our local community or it's an online community. We don't wanna do something that's already being covered by somewhere else, someone else. So we do have to think strategically about where the gap is yeah. and be methodical and be practical about that. But then it's fluid and it's organic and you're learning along the way. You're, you're kind of testing things out and sometimes they fail, sometimes sure. they work. You have to really listen to people because people will start to tell you, hey, we love this. Mm. Or, you know, you're not doing this, but we think there's a real opportunity there. And so just talking to people and listening to people will help guide you in the right direction. Yeah. Do you think there's a point at which you want to put some process around it or you sure. leave opportunity on the table? But in the beginning, I think you just let, let it evolve organically. And do you think, like, is there a point where, you know, not to use, like, you know, the Gary V. right hook? Like, you know, you're providing a lot of value, providing a lot of value, providing a lot of value. Is there a point where you go in for the, the sale or go in for the conversation or anything like that? Or are you not even thinking about that? I don't think I, you know, I'm not, I'm not thinking about that explicitly, sure. but I think, you know, what tends to happen is that that naturally, that opportunity naturally emerges and people are happy to help or they're, you know, or you've created enough value for them that they're ready to act on that. So if you do it right, I think it doesn't feel like a forced direct ask. Sure. Um, it doesn't feel like you're trying to sell something to someone or it just happens. Well, I know that, that even in the intelligently events, cause I, our office was right, it was, it was just me, our office was right there and yeah. I learned so much from it. But what was really cool was you would have people like Darmesh, you'd have people like Mike Trapp, like some of these people who were like legit have really no obligation yeah. except for the fact that they were helped obviously on their road and what's kind of cool is you know they got some value from it and That's then they right. were more than willing to provide value and more than willing to 
you know, email lists or help out with things. Yeah. And so it's, it's kind of, it's one of those things where it can't necessarily be spreadsheeted out, right. you know, perfectly, right. but it is one of those things where it's kind of like, here's a North Star, let's like build towards it. That's and then, right. you know, success is a byproduct of excellence, which is cool. Yeah, I mean, I think Intelligently is the perfect example. So all those people that you just mentioned, when we first started out, we said, hey, we'd love to pay you for your time. Yeah. They all said, we don't want you to don't pay us any money. Yeah. Like we're doing this to give back. And for the first two years, we just hosted these classes and we didn't make much money. We made enough money to cover our operating costs. Mm -hmm. But after two years, 3,000 people had gone through the program from a couple hundred companies. And we kind of looked around and said, wow, there's a community here. Let's monetize this community. Like there's an opportunity and we should tap it. And so we went to all of those people who had gone through the program and said, we've been doing this for you today. What would you pay money for? What's still missing for you? What's the next level? And that's what led us to develop our leadership development program for high growth companies, just from listening to people and understanding that there was a gap still there. And there was actually an opportunity to kind of make money and also continue to serve the community. That's cool. And do you think that like in your, in your experience, because you kind of, you almost did this internally a bit when you were at Pluralsight, um, which acquired Smarterer. You were head of people ops at the time, and, and was that easier, harder internally? Because obviously head of people ops, you're doing a lot of mechanical things, and then you're trying to build that community internally. Like, What was that like, or was it not even applicable, Like, just given the nature of the role? I wish I had taken that lens on it when I was the head of people at Pluralsight. is 2020. Right, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think I was much more focused on the operational side when I went into the company. I thought, okay, well, we... hit them at like a very fascinating time. That's right. right? Yeah. That's right. You know, I think almost, you know, that community building part had come before me and there yeah. was this great foundation That's and right. like really one of the strongest company cultures I had ever encountered in my entire life. And the founders had been really deliberate about kind of crafting the culture and hiring people who aligned with the core values of the company and just kind of reinforcing that inside the business. And so that was really strong when I came into the company. And what wasn't as strong were all of the processes and kind of operationalizing people ops inside the business. And that's where I was focused when I was there. And I think, you know, we did a lot of good on that front. But I also think that for the first few months, at least, I missed the people part of it. I missed Mm -hmm. the community. I, I didn't realize how important it was to weave that into my work, which is ironic given that I was the head of people, but I was more the head of process in sure. some ways. So well, that's what you were saying. You need both, right? You need, you need both. Like both you need both for better or for worse. Yeah. But is it so, like something I'm actually really curious about? Is backup software, running tracking software, education software, community, yeah. crypto? Yeah. There is not. Is there a common thread there? Like, is it more you like chasing like these brand new, really cool opportunities, or is it? Is it something where you found like this common thread through everything? I would say the common thread is that I'm always really deliberate about what I'm optimizing for in my next role. And so I think about, okay, what have I learned to date? And then how do I want to grow and expand in the next sure. company, the next opportunity? And so, you know, it doesn't seem like there's a clear line between all of those businesses, but I was really specific about what I was trying to achieve in each one of those roles. So if you kind of, you know, pick apart what led me to follow each of those paths, it's very clear now. That's cool. And is it something where, like, if you look back, because you've been in Boston for a while now, like building different companies, like working with different types of people, like what makes Boston different than 
you know, Salt Lake or the, the Bay Area or some of these other ecosystems out there? Like, why, why have you stayed in Boston when you could, you know, go run marketing probably anywhere? Yeah, so I'm one of the rare people who came from the West Coast to Boston yeah. and never intended to stay here. And really, for the first couple of years that I was here, I hated it. And I thought, you know, I'm not going to be here <laughs> five years from now, 10 years from now. <laughs> Weather's yeah. not so great. Yeah, it's yeah. March. It's still snowing. And then I fell into the tech community. And for me, it really is a community. And that is one of the things that's really different about Boston. Yeah. In every company I've been in, every role I've had, I've really been lifted up by the community. Mm. So many people here are willing to help and give back. I think you know you can call up almost any CEO in Boston and they'll have coffee with you. Maybe some yeah. of them, it might take a couple months, yeah. but it's a very approachable city. Uh, I think people really are willing to give back to mentor and they want to see a new generation succeed here. And even when you have companies that are competitive with each other, they're willing to share information and knowledge and resources. And I think that's really rare to find that in a city. So intelligently for me was that it it was the epitome of that, that, you know, in four or five days, we got this company off the ground and the community rallied behind us and helped us become successful. And that's what Boston is great at. That's really cool. How has it kind of changed? Because I remember when, so when I first came into the Boston, like startup ecosystem was like six, seven years ago from Google. It was right when, it was a really interesting point because I remember talking to like folks like you, folks like Court, you know, Viz, that type of stuff where it was like, it was very, um, oh yeah, like 10 years ago, apparently we couldn't even, we wouldn't even hang out. Like no one would hang out, right? And and I feel like that started, you know, a good five, maybe 10 years ago, that, yeah. that transition. And then how do you think stuff has changed even further? Like, has that just accelerated? Because I feel like there's so many pockets now, different communities in Boston. Like, what do you think has changed? I think there's way more energy around startups now today. I do think, you know, I think we met back in 2012, 2011 in that era. And there were there was a core group of us who were building startups. We all knew each other. It's hard to say now if the community was smaller or if we just thought it was. <laughs> I think, uh, yeah. you know, one of the biggest things I've seen since joining Pillar is how much larger the community is here than I ever thought it was. Yeah. I kind of thought I knew everybody and I was connected so, to everybody in Boston. And the reality is there are just like thousands of people working yeah. on really interesting projects here. I think there's been a swell of energy over the last you know, decade in Boston as more people get interested in building and growing companies here. Yeah. And we had a bit of a dry spell in sure. Boston and in this region. And so it's, it's exciting to see that energy brewing. Yeah. I also think we're coming into an era now where we Boston's strengths are really poised to lead the charge for the next wave of tech mm-hmm. innovation. So we've got a great community around security, enterprise staff, We've got all the talent out of MIT and Harvard in machine learning and AI and robotics and blockchain. And so there was kind of this quiet period in Boston. And I feel like we're coming into our own now. And there's just more energy, more momentum than ever. Yeah. Do you think, were there certain things like foundational pieces that you think spurred that? Or was it just that what we're good at just caught up with the market somehow or a little bit of both? I think it's a little bit of both. Yeah. You know, I'd love to say intelligently played some role in getting more Absolutely. people excited about startups, but I don't think that's I don't think that's it. I think yeah. um, we did have this new generation of companies that were fresh and different and had kind of a different culture perspective that started to bring people into the mix and into the fold, and then that brought more people in and brought more people in. I think we've seen a number of successful exits over the last couple of years. So Wayfair has been just an inspiring story for our region. HubSpot. 
Lot, car gurus. You know, we're starting to see some big pillar companies start to emerge in Boston. And I think that gets people more excited about getting involved because they see that the potential is here in Boston and that we can build these companies that are going to endure and be around for decades. So I think that, that, that really is part of the driving force. Yeah, and it's been kind of interesting too because I think whether it's you know chicken or the egg problem, right? Because like recruiting has started to become easier. Yeah. You know, obviously startups are like in vogue globally right now, yeah. but that's like we're the the foundation was already here, and so now we're like riding those waves and solving some of those like functional problems. Which I think is really good. Yeah. And is it something where like as you? Kind of, I mean, you're a partner at a VC, essentially. Um, you know, that that sounds that came off much more aggressive than I meant it. But like, you know, you're a partner at a VC. It's not a dirty there. word. No, I know Patrick. it's not, but it came out that way. It was very, dirty words. It's very reflex, I guess. Yeah. Um, you know, is it something where from the bootstrapper? Yeah, from the bootstrap, <laughs> yeah. for now. No. Yeah. But um, do you find like is this is this harder, easier? Like as a marketer, let's say. Like I know the role is very different in certain respects, but as a marketer, like you know, money is at least for now, pretty plentiful, like getting pillar to be different, finding the right, you know, type of, you know, customers or the right type of portfolio. Like, is it harder on this side than it is on like, you know, marketing runkeeper, for example? I don't know if it's easier or harder. It's really different. Um, It's been really enjoyable for me. Mm. I think coming in, so my partner, Jamie, had really created the vision for our firm and how we would be different. So, uh, you know, a couple of things he did, he brought in 17 CEOs from some of these big companies in Boston, Wayfair, TripAdvisor, DraftKings, who are our co-founders in the fund. And that was really a fresh new approach. And, you know, we're offering common stock on any deal we lead because we believe we should be aligned with founders. We're just doing a few things that are kind of new and fresh from my perspective. And so that has been from, you know, the standpoint of a marketer made my life easy because Uh that, you know, I think what we're doing really is differentiated. I do think there are more seed funds than ever in Boston, which is a great thing for our ecosystem here to have, you know, that capital available for founders. But it means that we have to work even harder to stand out and to be different. For me, that's just been a really fun challenge. And I think, you know, we talked about some of these emerging technologies where Boston is strong. Those create great opportunities for us to find the leaders in those fields and create movements with them, you know, to really rally people behind those technologies in Boston. So blockchain, AI, ML. So that's been fun, you know, to to find those people and align with them and join forces and figure out how we can evangelize and get more people excited about that opportunity. And do you find, so the, 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 what do you call it? The pillars or the like? The, our co-founding. We, we go back. We, we're terrible about this. Right. The latest is our co-founding pillar CEOs. Okay, so the pillar CEOs, yes. like, so I found this fascinating yeah. because every VC in the world has been like, That's right. we're going to help you with content. Yeah. We're going to yeah. help you with introductions. Yeah. Like, we have someone who's director of platform, yes. and they they host events, and they have a blog, and like all this yes. stuff. And there's, there's a few, like, first round, first mark. They've done an amazing like, job. Done really, really yeah. good jobs with that. And, and True Ventures, who it. backed our last company, has done an exceptional yeah, job. really good, especially with their events and yeah. things. So the pillars, though, or the co-founding pillars, like, or CEO, sorry, is how was that affected? Like, the like the companies that you work with, the companies that you're looking after? Because to me, that's the most compelling yeah. piece of it. Yeah. 
Yeah. It's different for every company, and it's been incredible to see in action. I think, you know, when Jamie launched the firm and I came in, we had this idea that every founding pillar will pair up with every portfolio founder, and they'll develop a mentoring relationship. And the reality is that that's not how entrepreneurs work. Like, sure. each company and each founder needs something really different. Sure. And so our founding pillars have really flexed with the needs of our portfolio, and they're all involved in different ways. So some of the things they've done, so some are official board members or strategic advisors to our companies. They help with customer development. They might be customers in some cases if there's a fit there. There's a big event we do every year, our unconference, where they come in with all of our portfolio founders and lead small group sessions around scaling high growth companies. Um, We don't get to sit in on those, which is a bummer because we'd love to be a fly on the wall. But, you know, we just let them all get together and let that energy kind of marinate. They lead dinners for us. They're taking small groups of founders from our portfolio and other founders from the community out. So they're involved in lots of different ways. I think one of the most surprising things for me personally has been that some of these guys and women are building companies actively today. Like they're still scaling their own businesses, most of them. And um, some of the people I would expect to be the busiest have been the most gracious and generous with their time because they really enjoy this. And, And this is kind of getting back to the thread about Boston and what we're good at. I think they're all really energized about the opportunity to give back and see these founders start to grow and succeed. And that's cool. That's well, it's cool kind of cool too because not this metaphor is a little overused, but I just love the fact that like let's say I wanted to be an actor, yeah. like going and like emailing a famous I'm doing actor. It right now. Yes, yeah. this is what yeah. we're doing. <laughs> yeah. Like emailing a famous actor, like or actress, and being like, "Hey, I just want some advice." Right. Never gonna happen. Like it probably yeah. does happen a little more yeah. than we think, but like probably pretty rare. But like I can email Jeremy Hitchcock. That's I can right. email like some of these folks, and. They'll, get, they'll not only get back to you, but they'll like, yeah, I'm, I'm in Boston. Where's your office? Come like, on by. And it's like, yeah. you're, you're kind of, you're, and when you really think about these folks, like on paper, you're like, holy shit. Like this person is like hanging out with me and they're so successful. But I think that's what's really cool about Boston is like people are, there's this weird like humility where they're still like, oh, that's really cool. Like that two person company working on this thing that probably will fail, but like might not, but it's still cool and they still want to be involved and help in any way they can, which yeah. is really cool. Yeah, they were all uh, here on Tuesday night for dinner with our portfolio and it's like the most approachable group of people who yeah. have achieved so much and are just humble and modest and yeah. so full of great advice. What's something you struggled with in your career at any point that you overcame? And how did you overcome it? I think not being my authentic self. You know, like thinking I need to play the part of the role that I was in. In my very first job, I came into a retail store that had, it was actually one of the original Faneuil Hall marketplace Mm -hmm. stores called Pavo Real. And we had brick and mortar retail stores all across the country. And I came in as a sales clerk. And I remember my my old partner now jokes with me that I showed up on the first day in a Banana Republic button-up shirt and a pencil skirt and high heels. And I thought, like, this is what I need to wear to be this part that I'm supposed to play now. And I think I carried that through in other early jobs in my career where I felt I needed to craft a persona or be a certain way in order to be successful. And probably kind of coming into Runkeeper, I thought, enough of that. Like, life's too short. I just want to be myself. (laughs) And get real. Right. And find a company where, you know, the culture fits me and, you know, the people there are people that I can be myself with. And then, you know, that just took a huge amount of weight off my shoulders Mm -hmm. to realize that, like, you can be yourself and you can be in lots of different roles and kind of be a chameleon, but still stay true to yourself and you'll be more effective that way. That's cool. Yeah, I think that's part of, like, just... Realize, this is why I always tell people, you can always find a job. 
Like you can always find one. Worst case scenario, you can always find a job of yeah. some sort. You know, and it's I think it's that helps me with that a little bit yeah. more. Is like okay, I can always find a job. Why not just like live how I want to live? Yeah. That makes sense. That's right. Um, I think a lot of people struggle with this idea of imposter syndrome. Like, well, I, yeah, I don't know if I have the credibility or the skills to do this job effectively. And so you you try to put on this front and play a role, but the reality is you got the job. You probably had the skills you needed to be able yeah. to do it and do it successfully. So just like you have to own that and believe in it. Totally. What's something that you're still struggling with that you're trying to figure out? That's a great question. Wow, I feel Walter. like I'm on Barbara Walters Dave right Walter. now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Got them all figured out. I think one thing that has been a shift for me, probably more than I expected, was transitioning from the operating world into venture and transitioning from being very deep in a subject and understanding the entire competitive landscape and really knowing the market sure. and truly being an expert to now in venture being very broad. I think we know we know a bit about lots of things, but our understanding of those things is more shallow than they are when you're in a company running it every day, day to day. Mm-hmm. And so that shift and also the shift from, you know, rolling up your sleeves and being able to do the work yeah. to being a coach and yeah. a supporter of the people who are doing the work. Job. Right. <laughs> but you have to trust that like there's a reason why you invested in them because yeah. they're the ones who should be building the company, not you. Yeah. And like, you know, really understand that your role is an advisory one. And so that's been a shift for me. And I think, uh, you know, right when I came into venture, I talked to a lot of people who are already in the industry and said, you know, what would your advice be to me? How, how, what can you do to be a good board member, to be a good investor to these companies? And I think that was a recurring theme I heard from a lot of people that I respect and admire that, you know, you have to take a back seat and remember that you're there to support and coach and not to do yourself. Special thanks to Sarah Hodges for lending her time to this interview. Now we have what it takes to build community and ecosystem. We talked about marketing-driven growth versus product-driven growth, the ingredients that make up community, how community drives the potential of a tech ecosystem, the drive to stand out and be different, and unlocking your authentic self with a willingness to adapt. If you want to support ProfitWell and the show, we'd appreciate if you leave us a five-star review of this podcast or the equivalent rating wherever you listen and watch. The podcast gods tend to like that type of thing, and we like to appease the podcast gods. Thanks for listening. Make sure you subscribe to and tell your friends about Protect the Hustle, a podcast from ProfitWell Recur, the largest, fastest growing media network dedicated to the world of subscriptions. 